new eyepieces from Masayama and Takahashi, some plossels on episode 389 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky, and this podcast is for everyone who enjoys going out under the stars. So, Shane, you uh, sent me a note uh, the other night. We were chatting about what we would do for some episodes this week, and you said, hey, let's talk about these new eyepieces, which I scarcely have heard about. But uh, yeah, maybe you can give us a bit of an intro on these. Yeah, sure. So quite a while ago, we did an episode like this on those new Pentax. um, I think they're like 83 degree field eyepieces. They released a couple focal lengths. Um, So we, we did sort of a, hey, everybody, heads up. There, there are some new eyepieces out there. And that's what this is. We do not own these eyepieces. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And, um, if somebody does, they should write in and tell us what their experiences are with them. Yes. That would be wonderful. Um, now this was before the holiday season. So I, I think these were both announced fairly closely together. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of in the fall or early winter timeframe, I believe. And what makes these two releases very interesting to me is that it sort of bucks like the current trend that's out there of, you know, enormous field of view eyepieces, you know, big, big glass, uh, all of that kind of stuff. This is sort of a throwback, mm. uh, in a way to, um, you know, eyepieces from yesteryear, if you so choose. <laughs> and, um, the, the Masayuma, uh, I guess they're the MOPs is what they're calling them. And, uh, I think that stands for Masayuma orthoplossal is what I'm hearing or reading. That, that is what it stands for. And I spent no less than 15 minutes last night pondering this. No, I spent a long time and yeah. Shane, I can't figure this, this one out. I I've got my, whenever I see phrases like this, I grab the go-to book, which is unfortunately um, I think it was out of print, but you might be able to get it through Sky and Telescope now. It's by Smith, Sergioli, and Barry, which is telescopes, eyepieces, and astrographs, design, analysis, and performance of modern astronomical optics. Mm. And I wanted to find out what the difference between an orthoscopic eyepiece and a plossal was. So okay. you want me just to read a little bit to you here? It's a, sort of like a bedtime story. S- story time with Chris. I, it does. It feels because it's time of the week. This is like a book. It's kind of like, it, it feels like, not that I've held them too much, but it's almost like a Bible of sorts. It's pretty thick. It's about two inches thick. And I think it's about seven by nine inches. Anyway, so it says that um, there were these these eyepieces that were triplets, and that essentially what happened is um, this triplet design was, uh, which were the uh, Euroscopic design, um, was uh, was transformed by Zeiss into what we call the Ab or Abe orthoscopic, which is similar to the uh, uh, Stenheil triplet, uh, basically modified with with another lens, um, and much better positive negative position, um, and so basically, these are forty five degree uh, eyepieces, these orthoscopics. But goes on to say that the term orthoscopic simply means correct view, mm-hmm. and uh, you know essentially it was applied to these uh, eyepieces with low 
rectilinear distortion and uh, meant to work at about F10. And then they show a bunch of uh, design schematics showing that you have these uh, three lenses and then a fourth lens sort of over top. So it's like three lenses as one elemental piece and then a fourth lens over top and how well it performs uh, at F10, giving a fairly flat field and some uh, some good design properties uh, at F5, although not completely corrected. And then the Plossel, they go to say the Plossel eyepiece is another longtime favorite that, like the AB orthoscopic, offers good performance over a modest field of view. The design is named for the Viennese optician George Simon. And then it's PLO. The O has some of those umlauts over it. And then a Latin B and then L, which I would have pronounced plobble. Hmm. But okay. uh, spelt as plossel or plossel, um, and that was in uh, 1834. And they say uh, not a modern plossel design, but a Ramsden with a cemented uh, doublet replacing the singlets. So it, it goes on to say that the eyepiece uh, basically was was around for a long time, and then eventually uh, was was uh, modified by Teleview uh, in the 1980s, and they began selling the plossels. Uh, as per a design patented by Al Nagler. Um, and that, that really, I think for the most part is, is what we, what we got when we talk about these plausible eyepieces, though I should, should add, and they go on to talk about, uh, Jean Texero, the, uh, the French optician, um, sort of involved in, in the evolution of that as, as well as, uh, the Brandon eyepieces using that, uh, Texero, modification but it it shows the plossal design as two doublets sort mm-hmm. of uh, facing mm-hmm. each other so for some reason i thought that plossals were five element designs but uh, maybe some of them are five element it's it's a bit of a modified design so when we talk about a massima ortho plossal eyepiece uh, i'm not really sure exactly what that what that means but it does say there are five elements in three groups so yeah yeah. 53 degree lens design it's kind of a strange label to me but Mm. from what i've read and where i gravitated immediately when i saw five elements in three groups is that that sounds an awful lot like the old takahashi le's um, Mm -hmm. or you know, you and I have talked about, uh, the pseudo Masuyamas in the past. And, um, those basically were five elements, I think in three groups as well. Um, so it appears to me again, based on what I've read and just this uh, configuration that these are kind of the old Takahashi LEs, just maybe in a, a different, you know, casing from Masuyama, which is mm. in my mind, quite aesthetically pleasing. I think they're beautiful looking eyepieces. Um, and from what I've read in, of the performance of these things, maybe before I get into that, they come in quite a few different focal lengths. Uh, so I'll start maybe at the, uh, shortest focal length, which is five millimeter, then excuse me, 7.5, 10, 12.5, 15, 20, 25, and 30. Um, pretty interesting. Uh, so I think that this follows some of the, even I think this fo- follows some of the focal lengths from the old TAC LEs as well. Yeah. Um, 
Now, what I've read is is kind of similar to what I've read about the TAC LEs and experienced myself when I've used them is they're very, uh, very good on axis, uh, you know, great cro- uh, contrast and throughput. Um, but when you get to the edges, particularly in faster telescopes, they break down a little bit. Mm. Um, the eye relief is a little bit better than what you would get out of a plossal or an ortho. Um, and you know, that's kind of it. I I think you already mentioned that these are 53 degree fields of view. Um, the other thing I've read is that, and this matches some of my experiences with, uh, the old Masuyama inch and a quarters, they're heavy. Um, like they, they have a, you know, sort of a sense of quality because of the, you know, the, the form factor and the weight. Mm. Um, and to me, that's a little bit of a downside. I, I kind of like a lighter eyepiece if I can, mm-hmm. um, but there's also two Barlows that they've released, uh, with this series, a, a 1.5 times and a, a two times. Um, I haven't really read much. I haven't read anything about the Barlows, uh, but I'm always intrigued when we get like something that's not a two times or a three times. So the, the one and a half is kind of neat. I, I like to see that out there. And, and I think that it's, it's just cool that we're getting, some different eyepieces injected into the market again, that aren't necessarily super wide fields, uh, because people like myself, um, I, you know, I don't always gravitate towards those. I like having them, but I don't always gravitate towards the wider field eyepieces. I do um, notice I'm just looking at them here on the astrohutech.store site. There, there's mm-hmm. a few, if you, if you Google Massiama MOP eyepieces you'll you'll see there's uh, several retailers that are carrying them i don't know that anybody's received them yet oh and, really well i don't know well i i think no, the retailers no. have received them but uh, have you read a review by people that have received them in hand yeah 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 oh, okay yeah yeah no they're definitely out there um dennis uh i can't remember his last name i'm probably going to pronounce it incorrectly i think it's levitic he um he does the Zeiss Spinal Viewers out of Europe. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he's quite prominent on Cloudy Nights. Yep. He just got a pair of a couple pairs, I think, or maybe even three sets of the Masuyamas uh, that he's testing out. He's also testing out the Barlows, uh, both from this set as well as the Takahashi TPLs that we'll start talking about here in a little while. Um, so they're definitely out there in the wild, and and people have been using them. Okay. Yeah, it looks like the price range I I see here is I think 179 to 189 US, US. dollars, yeah, yeah, per eyepiece. Um so not inexpensive but also, you know, not uh, not crazy expensive. Um mm-hmm. you know, which again, some of these wide field eyepieces um sometimes the the like just the entry cost could be, you know, north of $500. So um, that's one of the advantages of some of these, uh, simpler eyepiece designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see the, the eye relief is, um, is for them that 25 is 16 mils. Oh, the five millimeter tight. is four, seven and a half is five, 10 millimeter is seven. Okay. 12 and a half is eight. But then when you get into the longer ones, they have a real, I don't know how, if the eye cup fully folds down or not. I hope so. Mm. So somebody like me would probably be restricted to a 25 millimeter and then using it in, uh, in Barlow's, which they have mm. kindly provided, right? Yeah. 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 So, 
yeah, if you, if you got a few of these eyepieces and then both Barlow's, you'd be, you know, you, you would have an awful lot of choice of different focal lengths. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of cool how they've yeah. set that up, especially for people that don't wear glasses, um, when mm -hmm. you're observing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an interesting line. Um, and uh, you know, again, basic reading on cloudy nights, it seems like a lot of people are enjoying them. Um, but I think if you're using, uh, an F5 telescope, and again, this is all subjective, but, um, faster telescopes, you may not enjoy these quite as much. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of all I know about the mass Yamas, Chris. I don't know if you have anything else to add on those ones. No, I, I would be curious to see, did, have you seen a, I was trying to find it, but I haven't been able to find it like a actual optical layout. Mm, I didn't search for one. Yeah. I'm not sure what it would look like. Yeah. I'd be curious about that. Just, just for my own curiosity's sake, mm -hmm. I was looking at my Pentax 5.1 millimeter XO, but, uh, yeah, I wonder if they're the same design as that. That would be interesting. They're neat yeah. looking. I like the look of these eyepieces. They're a little old school, I think. Yeah. They, they really resemble that Masuyama design, um, you know, with kind of the, the matte black and the red line and the stylistic font. I, I quite like them. They're nice looking. Yeah. Just some people have published like, uh, I don't know, some schematics, but I don't know if they're, they're new. It looks like they put uh, the two doublets at the end and then the singlet in the middle seems okay. to be common in there in some of their designs. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but, uh, hmm. So yeah. are you going to pick one up? Not interested in these ones. No. Okay. Nope. Um, you know how I am with edge performance and, uh, you know, I've had the TAC LEs in the past, like one of the better renowned TAC LEs was I think the 30 millimeter. And I had, I had that one twice. Um, like whenever I don't like an eyepiece, sometimes I try it again because it could just be a sample, you know, like maybe I just ended up with a lemon. Um, but both TAC 30 LEs that I had, I just didn't enjoy. They were, uh, to me, unnecessarily weighty or heavy, and they really broke down probably 20 to 25%, uh, from the edge of the field of view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not like this is a giant field of view to begin with. And, you know, my opinion is, you know, it, it doesn't matter to me how sharp it is on axis because a lot of eyepieces are sharp on axis. Um, if you can't do the whole field of view, um, without aberrations, then don't do the whole field of view is sort of my opinion. Um, and I, I might be on an Island with that one and, and no. that's fine. But, um, so for that reason, I, I just don't really have interest in these. Yeah. I, so everybody's eye works differently and it's funny. Mm -hmm. So for me, just because of the way that my eye works, it's like, I never get that sharp a periphery anyway it doesn't even matter right um so if an eyepiece isn't as sharp on the edge it's not as big a deal to me because no eyepiece will be mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen it's it just not quite sharp just because like it's really hard for me to get eyeglasses that are corrected like that mm -hmm. i do have a pair i should get another pair made but it's just like a hassle and it's like well just like, you know, you learn to work around like your optical deficiencies, right? As an observer. 
Mm-hmm. So, so for me, I, we were comparing the Massey Yamaha 32 to the UFF. Mike had his out one night last month, uh, early in the month. And it was, it was really amazing to see the difference. So like, for me, it was funny, like, <laughs> like that left me wanting to get the UFF, but then also to keep the 32 Massey Yamaha because the 30 millimeter UFF, absolutely clear, flat, sharp to the edge, but sorry, things are going to come crashing down here, but noticeably, um, the uh, UFF was smaller, um, as far as the field of view goes, sorry, mm-hmm. I think a lot of stuff was just sort of falling on my desk here. Um, yeah, the UFF had a smaller field of view, uh, though it was sharper, uh, in fact, sharper even across that field of view, but it was really nice to have the added field of view when we we're trying to find stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's that. The other thing that we noticed is we felt that uh, it seemed like it was just the the Masayama, despite not being as sharp, it it seemed like it had just a hair more throughput. Mm, yep. Yeah. But that, Mike, that's always Mike been. Can correct me on this if I've misspoken. Go ahead. Yeah, that's always been. I think their claim to fame is the throughput for the Masayama for whatever reason, whether it's their coatings or their polish, uh, just seems to stand out and mm-hmm. seems to. Um, outperform a lot of other eyepieces of similar focal lengths. Yeah. So yeah, it's, you, you want, and I know like I, I read lots and, and I think lots about this stuff, you want everything to be equal, but it never is right. It's like last, last episode I was going on about the fact that if you want to observe in, in the winter here, when it's, you know, like the other night I was out and it was minus 18 with the windshield. Well, that how long can you be out in the wind at, at minus 18, right? Not that long, Shane. Mm-hmm. So, nope. you, so you want to build an observatory, block the wind. So build an observatory, block the wind, everything gets covered in frost because you've blocked the wind. The wind is a frost inhibitor, um, but you don't want that. But but like in, in your mind, you want everything to be equal. You block the wind and then you have the exact same observing experience just minus the wind, but it's just not how it goes with astronomy. It's, there's always the, these, um, weird trade-offs that when you go and start investigating, uh, you, you'll find that there's some devils in the details, I suppose. Yeah, there always is, isn't there? <laughs> so tell us about these, uh, Takahashi TPL Plossel. Yeah. Yeah. So the TPL, I believe stands for either Takahashi Plossel or just true Plossel. I can't remember. Um, and these are, I think by definition and maybe correct me, Chris, cause you've got the, uh, the, the, the good resource there, that book, but I think a true Plossel design, uh, is two elements or two groups of two elements. Yep. And I guess it, maybe you can break that down. There's symmetrical and asymmetrical Plossels. Yep. And I don't quite understand all of the different design nuances, but, um, from all intents and purposes, I believe that these are a pretty classic design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to read the, um, I put in the, the literature from astronomy plus, which is a place I, I buy these, but maybe I'll just call out that, uh, these ones run from in Canadian pricing anyway, 250 to 729. Um, they run six millimeter, nine millimeter, 12 and a half, 18, 25, 33 and 50. Yeah. Yeah. That right. That seems like a really wonky kind of lineup, but cool enough. 
Um, to design this, and I'm going to read the bit, to design this range of eyepieces, Takahashi simulated the combination of numerous optical formulas, I guess it should be formulae, at the focus of aberration-free instruments such as a TOA, a pachromatic refractor, and the Mulan. Uh, the best possible combination was uh, obtained uh, for these eyepieces. Plus, eyepieces are often underestimated because they are seen as cheap, low-quality, mass-produced. Takahashi has decided to restore a classic optical design to its former glory, but one that offers a host of advantages, provided it is designed and manufactured with the utmost care to achieve this. Prestigious Japanese manufacturer has used very low chromatic dispersion glasses and ensured that the exact optical characteristics of the lens with which eyepiece is associated are restored to the eyepiece. The center of the field chromatic aberration is reduced by half compared to the AB series and by two-thirds compared to the LE series. So I'm guessing these should work at F5 then, or seven and a half anyway. They should work really good in like uh, our Takahashi refractors if you go for them. For this type of eyepiece, which has no Smythe lens, the pet's full sum cannot be reduced to zero, so the flat field cannot be fully achieved despite this. It can be optimized. So like with the AB and the Plossels, um, which are a little bit rough at F5, these ones um, would still be not quite um, perfect at F5, but I'm guessing they should be pretty good at F7 or 7.5. Astigmatism and field curvature are perfectly controlled, uh, minimized edge distortion, image quality is excellent, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, even the stars tend to widen slightly at the edges. The image remains good, very good visually. Yeah, so it, with with these designs, I mean, originally they were optimized for F10. Sounds like they've kind of moved that up a couple, maybe three F-stops. So mm -hmm. they should work pretty good at F7, according to uh, the literature I'm reading here. So parent field of view was 48 degrees. And uh, yeah, I already read through all the uh, different focal lengths. So yeah, and they have a Barlow as well. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Uh, two times. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. So the, the field of view is a little bit smaller than the Masuyamas that we just talked about by about five degrees, um, which isn't a ton, but when you're talking narrow fields, it, it actually does feel, uh, like a, a, a significant amount. And, you know, I can attest to that just going from say my TMB supermonos to some orthos to plossels and all the way up the chain, you certainly feel every little bump along the mm -hmm. way. It's, it's quite noticeable. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the focal length variation starting from the shortest is, uh, six millimeters. Then it goes nine, 12.5, 18, 25, which those are all fairly common. And then you get some strange ones with 33 and 50. Um, the 33, uh, intrigues me. Uh, I believe that you're getting a field stop there that would be pretty close to the maximum field of view for inch and a quarter. And then the 50 millimeter does not intrigue me, but I think if you had say a, a Mulan or some sort of compound telescope, uh, that one may be of interest because it, uh, will help with your exit pupil there. Um, but what intrigues me about these is, is a few things. Number one, you know, the, the Takahashi description, uh, that you just read really mirrors a lot of the reports that people are, um, um, 
posting to cloudy nights about, you know, their experiences actually using these things. Mm. So I don't think they're exaggerating or, or telling a story here. I, I think it's a fairly accurate description. Um, they, they do provide some spot diagrams too, of, I think the 12 and a half millimeter TPL, uh, compared to the ab and compared to the le mm-hmm. and it's far less scatter um and you know you would hope that that applies across the whole line and just based on the reports on cloudy nights there's a very extensive thread uh first of all there's a, a, a very extensive thread about hey everybody there's these new takahashi eye pieces and then they created a new thread about user reports of of actual you know reviews and the reviews are pretty consistent, uh, about these things are really, really good. Um, there's a number of observers that compared these across other high end eyepieces like, um, the Zeiss Ab Orthos. Um, I don't know if there's been any super mono comparisons, but kind of the, the higher end, simpler glass eyepieces have been compared using, you know, really nice telescopes. And pretty consistently, the reports that come back from these folks is that uh, if these Takahashi TPLs are not equal to the Zeiss Ab Orthos, they're just a hair below in terms of performance. And, you know, if you don't have uh, a Zeiss Ab Ortho, like most of us don't, um, you would not be missing much, if anything, if you got yourself a set of these Takahashi TPLs, mm-hmm. um, which is phenomenal. Like, you know, when you think about the price of some of these, uh, high end, you know, orthos of the past or super monos, uh, the price of these TPLs are a complete bargain compared to what some of those, uh, used prices are and, you know, potentially may change the used market as well. Um, you know, if, if you can get very similar performance to a, a Zeiss ortho, uh, and only spend say 250 Canadian dollars, uh, compared to say, oh gee, I don't know, a thousand to 1500 Canadian dollars for, you know, some of the Zeiss orthos, uh, this is kind of a no brainer in terms of, you know, choice. So I'm very interested in these ones. I've read a lot of reports. I'm considering buying some of these Takahashi TPLs just to try them out on my own and see how I like them. Um, so at some point I, I might be able to provide a firsthand account of them. Um, but certainly very interested. Now the, uh, the two times Barlow, I'm, I gotta say out of the gate, I'm not at all interested in this thing. Um, they use, first of all, they use compression screws rather than a compression ring. And I don't like that because the screws typically end up marring the, uh, the eyepiece, not that it affects performance. It's really just a cosmetic thing, but I have no idea why they wouldn't use a compression ring because that avoids a lot of that type of marring. Um, but even more strange to me is, um, uh, Dennis Levitic, uh, he posted this on cloudy nights just, uh, not long ago. The, the casing or the barrel on this two times Barlow is 30 millimeters, uh, in diameter, uh, exterior diameter, which is bizarre because like inch and a quarter is 31.7 millimeters. So he's saying that his, um, like twist locks and compression rings on all of his, uh, accessories cannot tighten around this two times Barlow. Weird. And there, so like, there's multiple issues with that, you know, number one, it can just slide out. 
Number two, it sounds like it's it's got a fairly long uh, barrel as well. So it may impact like a diagonal mirror, depending on what you're using. Mm. Um, and then the last part of this is, you know, it doesn't really get centered in that optical path. So, you know, here are, you're potentially using some Takahashi TPL eyepieces, which are designed to get the most performance out of your equipment. Well, you want everything to be perfectly aligned along that light path. And if you're putting this Barlow in there and it's not centered, you're sort of compromising it now. And, uh, I just don't understand why they would do that. Now, the other part of this is the Barlow is quite inexpensive given that it's a Takahashi <laughs> product. Like I think it's like a, around a hundred us dollars or maybe it's even a hundred Canadian dollars. It's, it's, it's not that expensive when you consider, you know, what Takahashi prices typically are. So. Um, I haven't heard a lot of, uh, like reports about how that Barlow performs though. So, you know, I guess we'll see how that comes back. Hmm. Yeah. So that's what I know about the, the TPLs, Chris. Probably not something I'm looking to get at this time, because as, as discussed in the, in the previous episode, I'm going down, uh, the path of commissioning the observatory, which has many, many things that I need to get for it, but I I'd be interested like in the 25 and then borrowing that because mm -hmm. yep. I have, uh, the 1.6 Nikon two X and three X televues. And, uh, you know, I, I could see using something, something like that might be a neat eyepiece to have at some point in time, but that would be, that would be about it for me. I mm -hmm. think. Mm-hmm. The ones that intrigue me would be the, uh, the 33s. This would all be for binal viewing purposes, but, uh, the 33s, um, 33. Yeah. The, I, don't, I don't know that that would go in a binal viewer, would it? Uh, well, I think it's I'm a not two sure. inch. Sorry. I think the 33 is a two inch. Oh, is it? Okay. I thought it was inch and a quarter, but yeah, if it's two inch, then I'm, I'm out on that one. That's for sure. Let's see if it is. Cause it's in a whole separate, it's in a whole separate thing thing well they so they released all of the well i shouldn't say all of the other ones but the 33 and the 50 were just announced i think just before christmas um so they're new additions to the lineup i'm not sure if that's why it might be separate well, maybe it is maybe maybe it is but I, it's hard to tell like again 38 yeah i mean i guess it could be it would be one and a quarter maybe but it it doesn't say here like i can't tell based on what I'm reading on the, the specs. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it is one and a quarter. I just year. assumed it would be because with that field stop, I'm not sure no, no, you why do... you'd put it into two inch, but yeah. Yeah. Well, that would interest me then. Yeah. What the eye relief is like on it. Uh, the initial reports are very comfortable. Huh? Um, yeah. Yeah. So the 33, the, maybe the 18 intrigues me, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, the 12 and a half. And, uh, so for sure I would be interested in the 33 and the 12 and a half. And then the maybes would be the 18 and the nine for me. Uh, again, just strictly for binal viewing purposes. Yeah. It says that it, uh, 33 has 23 mils of eye relief, but I'm having trouble seeing if it's one. I mean, uh, yeah, here we go. Takahashi Europe has it. It is one and a quarter. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. That's cool. 
Yeah. So, so that one would interest me. That one would, but that's, that's getting up there though. How much is that one's a lot though, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's the downside. Um, it's not inexpensive. So I, I recently, I recently acquired, actually, I haven't told you about this, Chris, but I've had a attack ab ortho for a 32 millimeter. I've had it for quite a while and oh. I've been interested in a second one for bino viewing. And, uh, I was able to acquire a second one, uh, from Astromart, um, just around the time actually that I got the Borg 90. Mm. Um, so, you know, these are, I'm like the, the 32 mil that I've used Cyclops viewing has been wonderful. Um, so I'm very curious about it now in vinyl mode. Um, but apparently these TPLs really outperform, you know, this particular line of tack, uh, ab orthos. So, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to wait for more reviews to come in. Uh, there is somebody on cloudy nights that, uh, laid out his review that he will conduct and he's got like the Zeiss ab ortho two. He's got the super mono. I forget what focal length it is, uh, that he's testing. Um, but he's going to do this very extensive test. Again, he has really nice telescopes and, um, you know, as some more data comes in that probably will help me make a decision whether or not I'll stick my toes into this water to, to test out. Yeah. I like what you're saying about if they pan out, they could be, uh, you know, good, not replacements for like the Abe series and Zeiss series and TMBs, but, uh, yeah, that this could be an interesting set of eyepieces for sure. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it just, it, it gives people some interesting options in a part of the market where there wasn't a lot of options two months ago or three months ago. So, um, thought it would be kind of neat just to have a quick conversation about this on the podcast yeah. and make sure everybody's aware of it. And like you mentioned at the start, Chris, if anybody has these eyepieces and you've been using them, we would love to hear about your thoughts, um, how they compare to maybe some of the other eyepieces that you've used and, uh, you know, do you plan on keeping them or not keeping them? And, and we don't own these. Um, I know when we, we did the one on the Pentax, I don't know, like sometimes you and I will just talk about eyepieces and that's what this podcast is. It's you and I having a conversation, mm -hmm. but some people were disappointed that you and I didn't have those eyepieces. And in full disclosure, I uh, was so excited about those Pentaxes that uh, when, when they were first announced, I did write Pentax to see if we could obtain review, like a review model or something. And they never wrote back. Mm -hmm. And um, so I kind of given up on that. We just don't have that level of followers that we had like, you know, every single amateur astronomer following us maybe, but, uh, but yeah, we only have a few thousand people listen to the show. So I, I think we need quite a few more, um, to obtain samples and, uh, yeah, we, uh, we just do this for fun. So we don't have like a big budget to run out and buy every, every new eyepiece that, uh, that comes down the pipe. That would be cool. Like if Takahashi or Masayama is listening and, and want to send us one or, or a full set of these for that matter, uh, we'd be happy to, uh, to test them and, uh, yeah, give, give people our honest thoughts on them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Especially where like we, we, I kind of feel like we, we, you and I encompass like different ends of the spectrum as many observers do where you're going for that very sharp. I really like the throughput. Um, you know, it, it could be an interesting debate. Um, mm -hmm. if we went out and observe with, with these sets, I think we'd have differing opinions uh as as many of us do 
Yeah, absolutely. And just gets back to the subjectivity of this hobby. It, it really is from top to bottom, a, a personal experience and what you enjoy at the eyepiece. Speaking of personal experiences, I brought up my sketchbook that I, I just bought the next size up because I wanted to let people know what I'm using is the Stillman and Burn B-I-R-N, um, archival quality premium sketchbook, black tone, dry media, light wash ink. And so it's a, it's a black, uh, paper spiral bound. This one's seven by 10 inches, mm -hmm. 50 sheets. So a hundred pages and, and sort of, I didn't notice this before cause I'm not really into like necessarily reading everything, but this is actually called the Nova quality paper, okay. which I think is kind of funny. Yeah. It kind of and, aligns, right? <laughs> yeah. There you go. And it's, it says for mixed medium, but it does say for ink. So I think that that is why it does work. Well, I know I was talking to Randall about inking on paper and he was talking about some of the challenges. You have to make sure you buy a paper that is, um, I think archival quality and for ink. And, uh, and this paper is for that. I think that is one reason why it does work, uh, fairly well. This is the next size up I was using, I think six by eight books before. But I wanted, I, I felt they were a little small, but I really like these because they're very, very hard. They have very hard covers. So uh, it's not like flopping around in my hands or anything. Not mm -hmm. inexpensive. It's uh, 40 bucks Canadian a book. And, uh, but they are quite nice. And that's how I keep my logs and probably go through. I use both sides, probably doing about, um, yeah, two, two of these books a year at the present rate, give or take. So that's, that's my book. And then I got this little thing of, oh, I just dropped my Altoids tin. Um, the Conte Paris. Yeah. Chalk that I got is B. So that's what we're doing. Speaking of black and white, we had a, uh, a person write in with an observation and sketch Shane, um, did you want to take a read? Uh, excuse me. Yeah, sure. Um, so Mike from Illinois wrote, dear Chris and Shane, uh, after listening to your episodes on sketching over the year and a half that I've been listening to you, I decided to pick up pencil and paper and give it a shot. Uh, my first recorded sketch was basically a plot map of my observation of NQ... Geminorum, a carbon star in Gemini on March 6th, 2023. Since I've started doing this, I have noticed that I am paying much more attention to details in the objects I'm observing. So on to it then. Uh, mm -hmm. so he gives a bit of a, uh, an observing log here. So the, some of the details and it was January 12th or no, January 2nd, 2024, uh, the object is Uranus. It was, uh, 8 PM until 9:45, and it was clear skies. Mm -hmm. Temperature was freezing at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Dew point was 27. Humidity was 76%. Moon phase was last quarter at 59% illuminated and, uh, using an Orion Skyview Pro 8, uh, which is a eight inch, uh, F 4.9, uh, refractor. Mm -hmm. So he goes on to say after starting out on the deck or after starting the night out, doing a quick observation and sketch of Jupiter with nothing special to report, 
Other than the ever-changing positions of the Galilean moons, I decided to move on to Uranus. Uh, I typed into the hand controller and the telescope swung into position. It appeared almost colorless at 55 power using the 18.2 millimeter teleview delight, increasing to 143 times by switching to my seven millimeter delight. Uh, Uranus started to look more disc shaped and take on the aquamarine slash cyan hue. Uh, cranking up the power by inserting the seven millimeter into my Teleview two times Barlow to get 285 times, I decided to start my sketch. I plotted Uranus down first. By that time, it was slightly off center, so I decided to leave it. Next, the three stars to the north, then one to the northwest. Finally, the magnitude plus 9.99 star to the south. I started at it for another 10 minutes before I was off to the next target, IC405. Up in at, Oh, sorry? Up in Auriga. Mm -hmm. flaming star yeah yeah uh as i was getting ready to switch targets i thought i saw a small glint of a speck to the west of uranus after alternating between adverted and direct vision watching the speck appear and disappear i looked away from the eyepiece for a time that brought my vision back right back and the speck appeared in the same spot i realized then that i was seeing one of uranus's faint moons uh, i then plotted it down on the sketch as close to the position as I could in the dark. Uh, I have observed Uranus many times through the telescopes I have owned and used since I first started in this journey and have never been able to see any of Uranus's moons until I decided to take the time and sketch uh, the observation. Uh, I looked uh, up uh, a detail of Uranus on Sky Safari and using the positions of the plotted stars confirmed the object in question was Uranus's moon Titania uh, at magnitude 13.9. That's a pretty darn good observation. Oh yeah. 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 So long story short, I would like to say thank you guys for turning me on to sketching. I've been going back through objects I've previously observed and I'm noticing many more details that I've previously missed. It really helps to slow down and actually observe instead of just looking at an object and moving on. Attached are some pictures of my sketches from that night. Love your show. It makes my drive to work in the mornings more bearable. Mike from Illinois. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. It's, uh, really cool. Um, I didn't see, I saw the one of Uranus and Jupiter, but didn't, I didn't see the one. Did he sketch IC405 and we just didn't get it or? I don't Did I miss think it, there? it was in the email. I, d I don't remember it. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'd be curious yeah. to see that too, but yeah, I like his, his handwriting. Very nice. Yes. Mine, yes. not so much. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I don't even try. Yeah. I'm <laughs> curious. Man, I want to know what kind of pen he's using. Cause yeah, that's, that's a wonderful sketch and the, you know, it, the detail and smudging and everything looks quite pretty. Yeah. I wonder if he's just using a, uh, some sort of white pastel pencil or something like that. Cause yeah, it's very, very consistent in the, uh, in the flow. You can see, I like how he put in the, uh, spider secondary mm -hmm. spikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah the diffraction your, spikes. Yeah. yeah. Diffraction spikes. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty nice. What, what do you think is at the bottom of that field of view? It almost looks kind of like cloud or something. <laughs> I wondered, I wondered that I wondered if it was just, um, if he's left-handed or depending on how he had his oh. paper oriented, I wonder if he was using, um, like a chalk pencil to draw a circle 
and then it might have smudged or something. I, yeah, I don't yeah. know. But yeah, I was I was wondering about that too. But that was uh, looks like he's using a seven millimeter delay, eh? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then 2X he was borrowed to get that uh, view of Titania. Yeah, that's pretty good. Two eighty five in an eight inch. Um, yeah, that's pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonder what the angles are like because running a running a reflector on a on an EQ mount can get some funky angles, but uh, you have those yeah. rotating rings that helps a lot just to oh. get the eyepiece in a comfortable position. Sorry, does he have those or did I? I I'm not sure. Just oh, okay. uh, just a comment. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Mike. I I love getting the sketches from people. This was well. There's there's many sort of things, Shane, that we didn't anticipate when we were doing this podcast one we we didn't think we'd really hear much from anybody and we're fortunate to get uh you know emails sometimes a few emails every day for weeks at a time and right now it uh after the holidays always seems like it peters out a little bit but we're getting emails um you know every other day or so which is awesome and then the fact that we've talked about sketching um i've shared some of my sketching we've had other sketchers on to share their sketching experiences and then people have taken up sketching or or put them over the line to do it and that was uh, that's really really cool to see very excited mm-hmm. about that yeah yeah it's awesome and you know if there's one thing that does intrigue me about myself getting into sketching um it's the what everybody talks about is you you just start to observe better you start mm-hmm. to take in more detail because you're taking more time to look at the object and i think you know and you correct me if i'm wrong chris um when you're sketching you know, it teaches you to look at things a little differently because now you're trying to get in as much detail into your sketch. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're just, you're learning to see more. And I remember when I got into astronomy, there was this concept of learning to see, and I didn't understand it. It made no sense because yeah. I can see, I know what's in front of me, <laughs> yep. but after I started to observe and, um, get better at finding faint galaxies, and then bringing uh, some new people into like some friends out observing and would show them galaxies and they couldn't see it or they uh, would struggle to see it when it was very apparent to me. That's when the light bulb went on about learning to see. Mm-hmm. And I think this is just like another level of learning, um, you know, to become a better observer. So that part of it certainly intrigues me. Yeah, I think. And and for those that are looking to to get into it or maybe, you know, for for you, Shane, I think for me, the big thing that I learned is that you can do the sketches pretty quick. So a a lot of my sketching is done over minutes, not over like hours or anything like that. Like when I originally um, had thought about sketching, I thought, oh, it must take people like hours or whatever. Cause I have read about people taking, or like you read Omira's books and he might spend nights and nights on an object. Um, You could do it that way. Certainly I think some people do. But for me, when I go out, sometimes I'll just do a series of sketches of an object and then maybe sit, uh, you know, in the comfort of, of the home and uh, p- put one together. But now I'm kind of getting to the point where I have enough experience where um, just over the years, I've built it up that I can do a pretty good sketch in like, you know, five to 15 minutes um, of a target, you know, and everybody's different in how they want to do it. Uh, but I think that uh, that that's important because you don't, necessarily need to spend like a whole night doing a sketch or or whatever in some instances like i know howard bandage recently did a study of m78 i was referencing that in the uh, january edition of sky and telescope and and certainly he did on on that target that's just a a different approach 
um, that he was taken for that particular target. And it's really cool to see that. And certainly uh, I've done some similar things and and hope to do more of that in the future. But uh, yeah, you can kind of take it in any, any direction uh, that you want. And certainly it does teach you to see uh, an awful lot more and to really kind of nail down what you're seeing. It, it really forces you uh, to do it because you're making that representation. Um, the other thing that, I, that I've noticed is that it also helps me to uh, remember the fields, like especially when I'm doing binocular sketching, mm-hmm. is I tend to learn the fields um, of where things are pretty good. So I had many of the Messe objects memorized, for example, but now um, I really have them memorized. Like I can, you know, I can find most of them, um, you know, just off by off by recollection. Uh, simply because when you're when you're sketching them with binoculars, you have to keep going back and finding them and finding them and finding them, you know, over the course of, you know, uh, you know that fifteen or twenty minutes that you're doing that sketch. You know, mm-hmm. well, you have to find it first, do your observation, and then pull out your sketching stuff. So you might even be on an object for half an hour or so, and over that course of half hour, you might find it. Who knows, like 20, 30, 40 times. I don't know, uh, quite a bit. So uh, it does really. Uh, teach you how to find things and you know does improve that that skill as well because you're not just finding it the once or two or three times and then writing down the notes you're finding it and finding it and finding it over and over and over again yeah it makes sense um you know the at least the way my brain works or my memory works is that repetition um sort of practical use of things really drives uh, a memory for me and um, you know, sketching star fields where objects are and all of that kind of stuff would, would, uh, you know, help anybody, I think, learn or, or memorize what that looks like so that when you return with different optics or even the same optic, it's just easier to find and you're more familiar with it. And I know you haven't started it yet. I, I know you haven't taken it up, but one thing that I was thinking for you, if you, if you were looking to take it up might be to uh, go in a different direction, maybe take a look at father Secchi's, um, double stars. Mm-hmm. and his sketches i i feel like that's something that might um appeal to you because you're, you're you're a double star observer and the way that he was capturing like the colors of double stars yeah yeah that, that could be an interesting uh like an interesting uh, approach to sketching i've i've kind of been looking at maybe doing doing some of that it's just uh yeah i i think that's a whole different kettle of fish but it's yeah well cool. he- he did a great job to ca- capture the color, uh, but also the magnitude differences, which mm-hmm. I think is quite nice. And what is cool about sketching double stars is, is over time, they do change their position. Like yeah. they are a system in motion and some of them won't likely change much from our perspective on earth over a lifetime, but some will. Mm-hmm. And it would be neat to have a bit of a record of what it looked like on a particular date. And then you come back at another point in time and see if it has, uh, changed in any way. Um, so that part intrigues me. And then also, you know, with double stars, like certainly the, the color and the, like the, how close or how far apart they are is, is part of the enjoyment for me, but also sometimes it's their alignment of themselves, but also against the other background stars. Sometimes they form some interesting, I wouldn't say like you know, mini asterisms, but kind of like mini asterisms that aren't official. And, uh, that's another thing that would be neat to sketch and have uh, a log of. So 
you know, when it comes to sketching, that part intrigues me for double stars. The other part that intrigues me is solar observing, mm -hmm. uh, with hydrogen alpha. Um, I find it exceptionally difficult to put words to my hydrogen alpha observations to log those, um, because there's just so much going on and it's hard to describe, at least for me, it's hard to describe what some of the uh, prominences look like coming off the limb and, uh, you know, sketching those would create the log, you know, that I kind of desire. So yeah. I don't know if I'll ever get into it. I, I know I've talked a lot about sketching and have not really tried. I've, I've done a little bit of, um, I've taken out the lunar photographic atlas and then just put it on the table and started to sketch just without using a telescope, just looking yeah. at the book, just to start getting some sketching techniques down. And, um, I kind of enjoyed it, but yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I keep pondering this. I guess I should either decide to do it or just not do it. <laughs> yeah. On. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for me, I don't know. It was, yeah, I, I wanted to do it. For, I always wanted to do it. Like since I started in the, actually when I started in astronomy, I wanted to do photographs and I took a bunch of photographs at the, at the beginning of, of my astronomy adventures. And, um, and they were like decent photographs, like as, as good as you'd hope for getting started photographs. Um, however, I found that I, I was so focused on doing the photos. I wasn't, you know, out enjoying the, uh, sort of the, the experience under the night sky as much. And so for me, I, I kind of, uh, reevaluated where I wanted to go and, and what I wanted to, uh, to do. So then I, I had thought about sketching and I tried to sketch, but I had, uh, anyway, I had a medical problem that got solved, but I, I had a lot of trouble, um, with the sketching. And then once, uh, once I got that taken care of, then, uh, I was, uh, I was good to go, but it took about, uh, I guess about eight or nine years before I kind of got back to it and gave it another shot. But it, yeah, it's been, it's been really enjoyable, um, for, the, for, you know, I guess for, for the most part, because it gives me a nice log of what I was observing. And it's a photograph, like, it's not like a photographic representation, but it's a, it is a representation uh, of what I've seen through the telescope, especially the, uh, the white on black. Mm -hmm. I really, really like that, but uh, I'm still working on getting my, uh, sketches to scan properly. Um, because, uh, they, I think they, a lot of them are starting to look pretty good on paper. I think I've shown you some, but, uh, when, when I scan them and send them, it's, uh, yeah, often a little bit challenged still. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Mm -hmm. Cool. Anything else to add to uh, this episode, Chain? No, that is all I have, Chris. Well, next week, uh, I think we're going to have uh, Peter Jedicke join us to talk about uh, naming some asteroids in space, uh, which he has been involved in. Uh, he's one of the people that helps to give names to asteroids. And uh, I got to get some show notes made up for him. And uh, we need to hear from you listeners to help us fill in a couple shows on what you've recently acquired, received as a gift, or maybe it's uh, what you want to get or questions about uh, something that uh, maybe you think you might need for the coming year. And uh, we'll include those in a couple extra shows that we're going to do while Shane is away. You can send us those to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>